we are continuing in the Acts. We read earlier, first 13 verses of Acts, and that's what we're going to go through today. But there is a lot of ground to cover before we get there. We have to go back and do some background in the Old Testament to really understand what is happening in Acts 2, particularly in the first 13 verses and then uh, on into next week when we talk about the rest of the chapter. There are connections that are, are being made across the, the physical and in spiritual landscape that we need to understand because uh, without a grasp of them, we'll, we'll miss what's taking place here. Uh, so with that today, we'll, we'll cover these first 13 verses. Before we get to that, we need to talk about a couple of things. First one's filters. We need to discuss filters and how we use them when we read our Bibles. Uh, whether we know it or not, uh, or, or whether we want to believe it or not, uh, we all have filters that we use uh, when we read the Bible. And, and these, and we know filters are used to either eliminate or, or uh, strain different things out and discard them. You know, in, in cooking, you can do that and get rid of the unwanted elements. Uh, car engines filter out small particles to uh, uh, keep performance going at peak level. And, you know, we even use filters in email, right? So we know, we understand what filters are, right? What's left after we filter something, that's what we use, right? It's what uh, contributes to meal and cooking. It's what keeps your engine running well. What helps keep you sane when you look at your email inbox. So most of our, our biblical education is, is conducted this way using filters. And it's not some twisted, sinister plot. It's just what it is. Now, the content uh, we learned was filtered through certain presumptions and traditions, and that, that's ordered the material that we have presented to us. It, it puts uh, puts it into a system that makes sense to our modern minds. And in verses that didn't quite work with the tradition that we have or the systems that have been put in place, uh, they were considered problem passages. And those are either filtered out or just put off into the periphery of unimportance. And so we view the Bible through the lens of what we know and what's familiar. It's just how we've been taught. But we have to look at some of these passages on occasion uh, to have our, our filters highlighted so we actually know that we've been using them. Our traditions, you know, however honorable those things start off to be, they're, they're not always essential to the Bible and to study. They're the systems we invent to organize the Bible. They are an artificial thing. They're filters. Another thing we need to look at is the idea of a mosaic. If we look at the Bible, it's, it can be looked at as, as facts uh, 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 or bits of just scattered data, it, just pieces. And we have this tendency to impose order on that data. We want to make things nice and neat. And to do that, we use filters like we talked about. But we can allow ourselves to gain a perspective that is both much broader and deeper if we see the pieces in a wider context. And so we need to, to see the mosaic that's created by the pieces. And does everybody know what a mosaic is? It's little tiles that have uh, different colors. They're not always the same size or shape. They're just kind of random and they're put together. And when you step back, you see an actual picture is formed by these individual tiles. 
modern day usage is they can take a bunch of pictures, make them really small, change the color of them. And when you pull back, you see a different image. But when you zoom in, you see something else. You see something different. So that's a mosaic. So you got these all individual little pieces that are put together that when you pull back, you get a wider context of what's going on. And so that's the same with the Bible. We take these little data points and we need to be able to put them together to see the mosaic. It's not always clear when you're right up close. Uh, it, it, again, it may just look random. But we got to take a step back and, and see that the picture created by those seemingly random things starts to become really clear. And all the individual pieces, they are essential because without them, there is no mosaic. There is no wider picture or wider context. The significance and meaning of all those pieces is found in the completed mosaic. And that mosaic isn't, it's not imposed on the pieces, it's, it's extracted from them. So that's something we need to keep in mind when we're thinking about this. So as we're talking about filters and the mosaic, we need to look at some obstacles that are in our way of attempting to transition from using filters to seeing the mosaic. And the first is we've been trained to think that the history of Christianity is the true context of the Bible. This is likely the most difficult one to overcome. We talk a lot about interpreting the Bible in context, but uh, is Christian history the context of the biblical writers? No. We know it isn't, because the Old Testament was written before the time of Jesus' birth. There was a different context that the biblical writers were using. So interpreting the Bible, it's also done through, it isn't done through any of the church fathers, uh, although they do help shed light on things. It's, it's not through denominations or any type of movements, not the Reformation, Puritans, any of that. Uh, those are all filters that have been placed on interpreting the Bible. So the proper context for interpreting the Bible is the context of the biblical, biblical writers, those ones that they were actually uh, producing the Bible. Every other context is really, uh, you could look at it as alien to the biblical writers. And, and that, that just means it's alien to the Bible as well. There is a pervasive tendency within uh, the believing church to filter the Bible also through creeds. Uh, those confessions and denominational preferences. That's also not the context we need to be looking at things. So I'm not attempting to influence you away from or to ignore any of the church fathers or those creeds or anything like that. Just offering that we give their words and thoughts the proper perspective uh, and priority. The biblical text was produced by uh, people who lived in the ancient Near East and the Mediterranean between the second millennium BC and the first century AD. That's important to keep in mind. So to understand how biblical writers thought, we need to tap into that world. That's always what we're thinking about. We're, we're looking at what is uh, on the mind of the person from the ancient Near East and in that Mediterranean during that time frame. The second obstacle is we've been desensitized to the vitality and theological significance of the unseen world. This could be one of the filters that we're not aware of. So many Christians claim to believe in the supernatural, and I know there is issues with that word supernatural. I have my own problems with it, but it, it helps paint a picture for us. It's what we know. Uh, however, they think like, they think and live like skeptics. So, uh, this is typically, uh, part of denominations 
or congregations outside of the charismatic movement that, that hold this view. And uh, these believers are likely to say in, in an honest moment that the supernatural makes them uncomfortable. There is a belief of, of those that are uncomfortable that charismatic practices are divorced from sound uh, explanation and interpretation of the Bible. The problem here is that uh, this has devolved into a closed-minded overreaction that is, is detached from the worldview of the biblical writers, those people we were talking about just a minute ago. So the believing church is, is really bending under the weight of its own rationalism, that, that thought that uh, holds a modern worldview uh, that would be foreign to the biblical writers. Traditional Christian teaching has really for centuries kept the unseen world at arm's length. Right? We believe in the Godhead because there's no point to Christianity without it, right? The rest of the unseen world is kind of handled with a whisper. The underlying problem I'm wanting to highlight is that modern Christianity's view of the unseen world isn't framed by uh, the ancient worldview of the biblical, biblical writers. I mean, if you think about somebody who has witnessed uh, demonic possession or is convinced that uh, God has directed their life through a dream uh, that included the appearance of Jesus, what, what would we do? What would you think? What would you say? Most non-charismatics would have to admit that their, their initial impulse would be to doubt. And that's, that's a lot of people. They would, they would doubt that these things actually happen. And there's, there's a less transparent reflex that people have too when they're doubting. They might nod their head and listen politely, but the whole time they're, they're looking for other possible explanations to these things that they're claiming. And that's because our modern inclination is to insist on evidence, always looking for evidence, always wanting to say, I need to physically see this. I need to touch it if I'm going to believe. Third obstacle I want to highlight to overcoming filters is we assume that a lot of things in the Bible are either too odd or peripheral to matter. Uh, have you ever seen someone teaching from up on a platform and skip a passage of scripture because they don't understand it? I know I've been tempted to do this at times. Or heard them say they don't understand it, so they're going to skip past it. They might have even said, hey, that's too strange, so we're just going to skip this. Have you ever encountered any of that? Ever encountered someone glossing over something when they're reading the Bible because it's too hard to understand, so they just ignored it. They just let it go. I mean, this is, that strategy of, of reading the Bible is kind of ironic. Why is it that, that Christians who would strenuously defend a belief in God and even the virgin birth uh, just disregard all these other things in the Bible? Why would they do that? It's, it's kind of un, un, unrational. It's, it's irrational to say that I believe in in God, I believe in the virgin birth, but all this other stuff kind of creeps me out, so probably not. I mean, you'll even see 
you, you'll even see some of these people call out, you know, some academic SWAT teams to explain away weird things. Yeah. It, we'll get into to some of it in a little bit, but there are some odd things that people have interpreted and, and filtered the Bible through because they want to explain away the unseen realm. They want to explain away influence of the supernatural. The core doctrines of faith are themselves, they're not ordinary uh, or a compatible fit with rationalism that is sought through physical evidence. It just, it's just the way it is. It just, looking for rational evidence to explain these things away was not in the mind of the people who wrote the Bible. They understood what was going on in the unseen realm. And that's why a lot of uh, instances and what we're going to look at today is, is condensed because they had uh, an understanding that everyone who they were writing to, their audience already knew these things. And there was already an understanding of what was going on in the unseen realm and they believed it. So it's just time that we recognize our filters and, and the obstacles to overcoming them. Uh, it's time to allow the Bible to be the context that we use to interpret the Bible. So I know that was a bit of a lengthy sidebar, but necessary to kind of set up where it is that we're going because uh, we do need to get to uh, a place where we are thinking better when it comes to looking at Scripture. All right, turn to Psalm 82. Psalm 82 is going to start to open up some of the things that people find difficult to explain or want to gloss over or want to put a different spin on. And what we're going to be focusing in on here is the word God or gods. And in, in Hebrew, it's the same word. It's Elohim. We'll go ahead and read this. Psalm 82 says, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. We're going to be coming back to this passage in a little bit, but I wanted to show it to you now uh, to begin to display the word, use of the word Elohim. Using the word Elohim was, was very common. All right. This, this is the word that is rendered in this, in this passage, uh, God or gods. It's the same word. And we need to see that the word Elohim is used in, in a variety of ways throughout the Old Testament. The word Elohim is used more than 2200 times in the Old Testament. And it's used in, in reference to the disembodied in the unseen realm. 
Very important. The biblical writers refer to at least a half dozen different entities with the word, with the word Elohim. By any religious accounting, uh, the attributes of those entities are not equal. And we're going to come back and talk about specific attributes in a minute. The first one, Yahweh, the God of Israel, thousands of times in the Old Testament. It's talking about Yahweh, the God of Israel, the word Elohim. It's also used for the members of Yahweh's council, which we just saw in verse 1 of Psalm 82. The sons of God. It's also used for gods and goddesses in other nations. You can find that in Judges 11, 1 Kings 11. There's different places. It's also used for uh, demons, you know, the Hebrew word shadim. It's also used for the deceased Samuel in 1 Samuel 28, 13. And that says, the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. An Elohim coming up out of the earth. It's also used for angel, angels or the angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament. So the importance of this list, it's, it can be summarized with a question. Why would any Israelite, especially a biblical writer, really believe that uh, the deceased human dead and demons are on the same level as Yahweh? It wouldn't. The uses of the term Elohim by biblical writers tells us uh, very clearly that the term, it's not about a set of attributes. It's just a term that was used for the disembodied and the unseen realm. I mean, even when we see the word God, the letters G-O-D, we think of a unique set of attributes. When a biblical writer wrote Elohim, he wasn't thinking in that way. If he were, he'd never have used the term Elohim to describe anything but Yahweh. Sons of God or sons of the Most High. That was Ben Elohim. This was God's original family. And, and we're going to talk more about that also today. But we need to see this now and see that we're going to be able to, to make sense of the mosaic pieces when we start to put some of these things into understanding and know what we're talking about here. In Psalm 82, 1, it says, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. This isn't a pantheon of gods representing polytheism, which is belief in a bunch of gods and worshiping a bunch of gods. What we're seeing is a monarchy. You have the Most High God seated in his divine council and is holding judgment. Verse 2 says, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? I want you to remember this verse. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Because it's a tile in the mosaic that we are stepping back to see today. Verse 3 says, Give justice to the weak, and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Verse 4, rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Another tile in the mosaic. Verse 5, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. They, people, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. 
This is what's being represented here. We know what is referred to here in knowledge and understanding. We talked about this and we talked about the, the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of understanding. They didn't have a heart knowledge and connection with what it was that they were being led into by the sons of God, by the, the people that are being addressed, not people, by the Elohim that are being addressed in Psalm 82. Verse 6 and 7 says, I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Sons of the Most High, these sons are being judged for the way they ruled, for the actions that they took when placed in charge. Leading, They're being judged for leading people away into idolatry and leading the Most High's inheritance or his nation into idolatry. There is arguments that will take this in Psalm 82 and say that the sons of God are talking about people. It's not talking about people. They wouldn't be considered Elohim if that were the case. And there's other places this is referenced, like Psalm 89, uh, where it's talking about the, um, the sons of God in the sky. There's no people up in the sky. This is one of those things where we start looking at the filters that are placed on scripture. Things that are, are strange that we don't understand. Because this sounds like there's a pantheon of gods and this must be polytheism that the ancient Israelites were engaged in, where they were worshiping many gods, that wasn't the case. That's not what was being described here. We didn't start seeing that distinction of monotheism and polytheism until millennia later. But this is another piece of the mosaic here. Psalm 82, 8, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. That's a big piece of the mosaic right there. Specific set of attributes. Let's say we were going to come back to this, and, and let's talk about it real quick. When we see the letters G-O-D, what is it that you think about when you hear the, that word, God? What is it that you think about? What, what pictures come to your mind? I know we've been taught to associate things like omniscience, omnipresence, sovereignty. I'm sure there are other things that are coming to your mind. But this is not how the biblical writers thought about the term. Biblical authors do not assign specific attributes to the word Elohim, which we have translated to God or gods. That's why we had to go back through and look at the different uses of the word Elohim because our English translations uh, use the word in its place, use God in, in the place of Elohim. So it's somewhat offensive to our filter to see gods, little g, gods, because we've been taught to associate these specific set of attributes with G-O-D, with God. And we looked at six different uses of Elohim, or God, or gods, uh, so we must be able to look at the text and determine the use of Elohim, or God, or gods, right? Because without that, we're not going to be able to gain understanding of, of what 
tile of the mosaic is being presented to us. Just because we have Elohim used does not mean that there is a specific set of attributes that are associated with that, that term. Those sons of God that are talked about, they're imager, imagers of God, just like you and I are. And, and getting into that is, is a whole other teaching that we don't have, necessarily have time to go through today. But understand that this is part of the wider family that God has created. And so they're imagers just like you and I are. Do we carry a specific set of attributes like God does? No. The Most High is what we would call species unique. This is why we can worship Him. The sons of God are not to take worship for themselves. This is why I'm saying uh, we don't have those same specific set of attributes. Those things that we think about when we hear G-O-D together, God. That's what I'm talking about. It is There is a uniqueness to Yahweh that makes him worthy of worship. The sons of God seated in the divine council are imagers of his, just like us. But none of us are unique like the Most High, the only one worthy of praise. I referenced this a minute ago. Psalm 89.6 says, For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Most High? There's none like the Most High. That leads us to a translation. You know, in the New Testament, the word we see translated as saints is holy ones in the Old Testament. This disconnects us. And I've, I've talked about this briefly before, but this disconnects us from our family in the unseen realm. The same word rendered holy ones in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is the same word rendered saints in the New Testament, which was written in Greek. So with that change, it's hard to see that the use of the word in the Old Testament is reapplied to humans in the New Testament. So it's another piece of the mosaic that allows us to see our connection to the wider family that we're talking about. And that's the wider family in the unseen realm. Why is the world the way it is today? If you're to ask, ask that or, or just ask any Christian in general, why is the world the way it is today? If you're thinking about that, what would you respond with? problems we have, the different things, why is the world the way it is? The majority would probably point to the fall recorded in Genesis 3. And that's not a wrong answer, but from the perspective of the biblical writers and the people, the ancient Israelites, those people that lived in the ancient Near East, and, and even on to the first century Jews, that would be an incomplete answer. There are a couple other places that they're going to point to. Another one of them is in Genesis 6, verses 1 to 4. Genesis 6, 1 to 4 says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, 
for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. This is one of those passages that is explained away or hidden because it's difficult to understand the idea of the sons of God actually being those sons from the unseen realm. I've been listening to and reading a lot about this, and I've seen a lot of arguments that say this was actually humans uh, who were represented as the sons of God in this passage. One of those being that there are these 15-foot-long beds that archaeologists have uncovered. And in areas where you would expect to find worship of giant gods. And it's said that these were present in the presence of their gods and that a man and woman would come in and procreate in the presence of whatever uh, God was there and that the offspring is what of that is what is discussed here. That's one of the arguments. This is an explaining away of the unseen realm here. If, if we as Christians are going to say we believe in God, we believe in the virgin birth, why are we explaining things away like this? These arguments are coming from Christians, by the way. And so, and they, they think it's, it's valid. If the text wasn't exactly what it is, why wouldn't there be more of a discussion? This is one of those areas where the biblical author knew his audience and knew that they understood what was actually going on here. This is, this is a supernatural thing that's happening. I don't doubt that there, this, this pagan ritual that was described on these 15 foot long beds happened. I'm, I'm not questioning that. Uh, but why would we seek to overlay that to this passage? I, I don't know. The biblical author here obviously knew his audience. We have other instances where the angel of the Lord is referenced and they're described as men. They ate, they drank, and they were sought after by, by human men when they visited Lot. So again, we'll defend the Godhead and the virgin birth yet seek to disregard the supernatural in other areas. This doesn't make sense. So we have to make sure that we're not using these filters. If the biblical writer here didn't, didn't think to explain this further, it's likely because everyone in the original audience already understood what was happening. All right, the third thing that they would have pointed to to explain why the world was the way it was, was the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. This event represents the other point in history that explains why the world is the way it is. There was rebellion, again, within God's human family. Turn your Bibles to Genesis 11. So we originally titled this the Table of Nations, but I added on to it Cosmic Geography because it makes sense when we start talking about Genesis 11 and what's going on in Acts 2 which I promise we're going to get there. 
looking at Genesis 11, this leads up to the cosmic geography that was what was called the table of nations. Let me back that up here. When we're reading about this, this, this takes us right back to Genesis 10 also. We're not going to read that, but uh, the nations are listed out by name there. In the Hebrew, there are 70 names listed. In the Greek, in the Septuagint, there's 72, uh, just because of the way some of the names were translated uh, in there. They got 72 rather than 70. So your mind should already be making the connection to the New Testament. Luke 10.1 says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, in every town and place where he himself was about to go. The New King James Version says, In these things, after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. So depending on your translation, you're going to see either 70 or 72 there. But with what we know about Luke from the video we watched last week, he would have had access to the Septuagint. He would have been reading the Greek translation. And so that's likely where we get the number 72 from there. It makes sense that he would use it. Regardless of, uh, again, I keep going back to this, and, and I talked about it in, in Sunday school this morning. Regardless of the humble nature of that person portraying Luke in the video, he was, in fact, a, a master writer. The allusions he uses in the Old Testament or, or from the Old Testament are indeed genius and, and really point back to the significant events that allow us to see what was taking place on this much larger scale. We're stepping back to see the picture the, the mosaic, the full, the full thing of what's uh, uh, being placed by all these tiles we're dropping this morning. So his original audience was sure to be picking up on these, these literary points. Uh, we're going to examine more up here right now. So back to the Table of Nations. If you read Genesis 10, uh, you'll see what I'm referring to. Uh, we're not going to do that, though. It's listed as the generations of Noah, but later becomes known as the Table of Nations. That's what it's commonly referred to. And immediately following that, we have the Tower of Babel. So Genesis 11, verse 1. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Or Shinar. I don't know. We're going to just go with whatever you read it as in your head. There. That's how it's pronounced. All right. Verse 3. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. And they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and therefore confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name 
was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the scattering of the nations. When they were dispersed over the face of the earth, they were placed under the control of the sons of God, the Ben Elohim that we were reading about in Psalm 82. In Daniel 10.13, it says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. This is what we're talking about when we look at principalities and powers, these sons of God placed over the nations. When we read the prince of the kingdom of Persia, that's what is being referred to. So there's another piece of the mosaic. What happened when the sons of God from the divine council were placed over the nations? We have that answer back in Psalm 82. They were unjust in their ruling. They took worship for themselves. And they led the nations and enticed Israel away from the Most High and into idolatry. In this psalm, they're, they're being judged. The sons of God that were placed over these nations are being judged and sentenced to die like men. So we have this scattering of the nations in Genesis 11. What happens next in Genesis 12? Immediately after that, God called Abram. And he decided that he would build a nation for himself and do so through a man and woman who couldn't have kids. It was going to have to be a supernatural act of God for them to bring about a new nation. It was going to take a miracle. Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9 says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. And we, all, we know Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Here, Deuteronomy is describing this event of the scattering of the nations that happened in Genesis 11. So if you're wondering what thread I'm pulling on to unravel Acts 2, this is it. This is it right here. God divided up the nations. He gave them over to one another and made a nation for himself out of the the perfect couple who couldn't have a baby. They were perfect. There was going to be no doubt how this nation came about and who they belonged to. So how does Genesis, Genesis 11 play into future events? We look at Deuteronomy 4, verses 19 and 20. It says, And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bowed down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. He's saying, don't be drawn away from Yahweh into idolatrous worship of other gods, of other Elohim. There is only one most high. There's only one worthy of praise and worship. Just one. 
Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 through 5 says, If there is found among you, within any of your towns, that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, in transgression, transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing. And you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. This was a severe thing for God. He wasn't going to be tolerant of worshiping of lesser gods, of created beings, of his creation. Deuteronomy 29, verses 24 through 26 says, All the nations will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say, It is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt, and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known, and whom he had not allotted to them. So we're seeing the result of the adulterous actions of the nation of Israel in this right here. And that result was the exile. Deuteronomy 32.17 says, They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. So you're starting to see the fuller mosaic as we're starting to put the pieces together. What happens after the ascension of Jesus needs to be understood through the lens of what took place in the Old Testament. So why was all this happening? Deuteronomy 32:43 says, Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's lands. I'm going to read that again. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's lands. I, I get worked up when I read this, this verse right here. It, it really is fascinating to see the lengths that God is going for us. You're looking at a mosaic that demonstrates those lengths to which our Father will go to bring his family back together, the much wider family. Turn to Acts 2. We're starting off with the day of Pentecost, and we talked about this in Sunday school referred to as many different things. For us as Christians, it, it signifies a celebration because of what happened here at Acts 2. But we know that there was a, a, a much more long-standing history with, with Israel for this celebration, this harvest festival celebration. 
All right, let's, I'm going to read this again. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Eliamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, there oh, with me on these, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We have them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Can you imagine the disorientation of this? I, I was thinking about this and recalling my own baptism in the Holy Spirit. To say I appeared drunk is kind of an understatement. It was an intense experience for me, but it was very light and freeing. But there was a lot of disorientation. I, I couldn't even sit up straight. It was, so I, I think about these things and I wonder, what was it like to be in this, this time? What was it like to, to experience this on a massive scale and, and thinking about my own experience and, and being in the presence of hundreds of others having the same experience had to look pretty wild. Verse 5, now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. We briefly touched on this uh, in Sunday School this morning. What is the significance of this verse? If you think back to Genesis 10 and 11, the nations were listed and split up. They're listed out in chapter 10, split up in chapter 11. Then the nation of Israel was exiled due to idolatry, and we know that a majority of the tribes never returned back to Israel. And, they, and some of them were released to come back, rebuild the temple. Not all of them did. They remained scattered throughout all of the other nations. But we see here that there were devout men from every other nation represented. And there's a, there's a handful listed off there. You already have this piece of the mosaic in place. So we're starting to take a step back. This is, this is a point where you can start to see it happening. You can start to see the reclaiming of the nations take place. Go and make disciples of the nation. You can see the tiles of the mosaic are starting to reveal themselves, starting to reveal that bigger picture. So what are some of the clues that telegraph that Luke is pointing back to Genesis 11? Some of the language he 
he chooses to use, some of the words he chooses to use. If we know he was a Greek and he had access to the Septuagint, that would have been easy for him to read. So he would have been able to read the Old Testament. Acts 3 says, And divided tongues uh, as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. The Greek lemma for that word, divided, shows up in Deuteronomy 32.8 that we read earlier. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. The languages were divided up in Genesis 11, and so were the nations. So we could start to see the, the connections. He's using some of the same words to get people to think about what happened beforehand, what has already taken place. Acts 2.6 says, And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. The Greek lemma here for the word bewildered is actually confused, and it shows up in Genesis 11.7. It also shows up in, in 9. But uh, Genesis 11, verse 7 says, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So now he's connecting what's going on, not just with the language, but also with the reclaiming of the nations that were scattered. They were confused because they were hearing these Galileans speak in their own individual languages. This, this goes to show just some of that literary genius on full display. So we can't let the humble nature that is, is presented to us by this person playing Luke detract from the facts that this, this was in fact something that we were supposed to be connecting when we read these things. And the people there would have been understanding and would have started to make these connections themselves, especially when we get into Peter's sermon. We're meant to see the full breadth of the mosaic. And, and we can really recognize that we are filtering scriptures and make the conscious choice to throw off these filters. We get to see all of these things start to open up for us. In verses 7 to 13, it says, They were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all of these who speak in Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? And then it lists all those uh, different people. And it says, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And then we see that some of them, though, chose to mock rather than let the question hang. And in those verses, how is it that we hear? In the, uh, how is it that they will hear in their own language? It's the power of the Holy Spirit making it possible. We know that, right? And the desire of the Father to bring His family back together. He wanted the whole family back together, all of the nations, seen and unseen realm. Bring that whole family back together. And the power of the Holy Spirit is making it possible. The list here. That's represented in verses 9 to 11. It starts in the east and moves west. They all heard the mighty works of God being preached. They, they heard the reclaiming 
of the nations being proclaimed. They heard that God was bringing his family as a whole back to him. They were hearing that the kingdom was there. All of this was not overtly stated, but these devout men would have known the scriptures and therefore would understand what was happening and what was also happening in the unseen realm. What was taking place in in the larger family and in cosmic geography? I know we examined a lot today and, and revealing pieces of the mosaic. We talked about the divine council, the dividing up of the nations, calling of Abraham, idolatry and, and worshiping other gods. We touched on the exile, uh, Holy Spirit coming, the reclaiming of nations. We can't forget going into all the world and making disciples of the nations. You are participating in reclaiming of the nations that started at this celebration of Pentecost, where God made good on the pouring out of his spirit. He made good on his promise there. You're partnering with God as he's reclaiming his family. So my question is, is what will you do moving forward, knowing that you are participating in the reclaiming of the nations? How is this going to change your posture as you stand and take your place as a son of the Most High. We have to be able to think about these things. We pulled these threads out. We're, we're starting to see the, the individual tiles taking shape into a bigger picture of what's taking place in Acts 2. There's a lot going on there that just on the surface isn't apparent. But as we start to dig deeper into this, it, it starts to show up and, and it becomes blatantly obvious that there is much more going on. And when we start to read things like what we read in Psalm 82, we have to be able to say, am I filtering this? Is this, is this something that is weird? If it's weird, it's probably important. We're going to stop there. But think, think about those questions. What are you going to do moving forward knowing that, that you are participating in the reclaiming of the nations? Because we know that, that what they knew when they wrote the Old Testament they didn't have the full picture of the earth. They just, they just knew what, what they knew. And that was okay with God. It was okay. But we are still participating in this. We still have a part to play. So what are you going to do moving forward knowing that? How's it going to change your posture as you start to see that, that, yeah, I'm the son of the most high. Thinking about the, the term that was translated holy ones in the old Testament and saints in the new, it's the same word. It, It starts to reapply what was being talked about there to us. So it starts to connect us with the Elohim, the sons of God in the Old Testament. Not just necessarily the ones who rebelled and, and pulled the nations into worshiping themselves that they were put over. 
hold him into idolatry, hold Israel away from the Most High, hold his inheritance away from him. Not just those, but all the other ones that didn't rebel. How's it going to change your posture knowing all this? It should allow you to stand a little taller. To understand that, that the empowerment that Holy Spirit brings, that, that we read about, and we see what happened immediately after he came on those, that there was thousands added to their number. Thousands being brought back into the family who were then going to go wider back to their nations and start to bring others back in. I think that's it. Stop there. You can pray for us. Yeah, yeah. Father, I just thank you for who you are and the way you love us and for your gift of the Spirit. And God, I ask that this week we would just enjoy the Spirit. We would uh, take the time to learn more about uh, Holy Spirit. God bless our week. But bless our friends as we go out through the week. Help us all to get good rest and enjoy each other's time and enjoy each other's families. Peace and amen. Um, it's a great moment to give. Okay. It's not, it's not, listen, it's not, get it out of your head that you're just giving to this house. You're giving to Jesus. And also if you're not giving with a grateful heart, we don't want it. He doesn't either. Okay. And I mean that very nicely because the Bible actually says when you give with a good heart, that's when you're blessed. If you're given just to give, to make the, oh, I gave my 10%, you're good to go, nobody bothered me. You're not getting blessed. Okay, it's right here. Okay, love you guys. <laughs>